Introducing The Giant's Ladder, written by leading science marketing expert Elizabeth Schaub. Crafted for professionals at the intersection of science and commerce, The Giant's Ladder guides you through a structured approach to marketing scientific discoveries, enabling them to resonate in places that matter most, from laboratories to boardrooms to policy chambers. Get the best-selling book Kirkus describes as a helpfully practical and authoritative introduction to the marketing of scientific products at Amazon and other book retailers today. This podcast is supported by the Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai, the academic arm of the Mount Sinai Health System in New York City, and one of America's leading research medical schools. How will advances in artificial intelligence transform medical research and medical care? And what will this mean for patients? To find out, we invite you to read a special supplement to Science Magazine prepared by Icon Mount Sinai in partnership with Science. Just visit our website at www.science.org and search for the Frontiers of Medical Research Artificial Intelligence, the Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai. We find a way. Welcome to the Science Podcast for February 2nd, 2018. I'm Sarah Crespi. In this week's show, David Grimm talks about the naked mole rat and how it seems to defy some biological laws of aging. And news writer Douglas Starr talks about the triumphs of the Dunedin study, a very long and very comprehensive study of human development and psychology that follows all the babies born in one year in a small New Zealand town. Now we have David Grimm, editor for our daily news site. He's here to talk about a recent story. Welcome, Dave. Hey, Sarah. Okay, Dave, we're going to talk about the miraculousness that is naked mole rats. Naked mole rats. We love naked mole rats, Sarah. What they're really making us do here is question what we mean by aging. What does it mean to oh, get I thought we were going to question what older. we meant by naked. <laughs> <laughs> no. They're very naked. They're very naked. Okay, so um, they, they're making us question what it means to age. You know, does it mean just plain, you know, getting more frail, your body breaking down, or just getting closer to the time that you're likely to die. It turns out some new research suggests that naked mole rats don't really meet these standard definitions of aging. So Dave, these rats have some pretty amazing characteristics. Let's go to those first and then we'll come back of to course. aging. Of well, course. We, we need to talk about, every time we talk about naked mole rats, we have to talk about how amazing they are. They live a very long time, sometimes more than 30 years. And we consider the mice only live about four years and that's in a sort of controlled laboratory environment. They almost never develop cancer. They can survive 18 minutes without oxygen. And they breed in these what are called eusocial colonies, where each colony only has a single breeding female. So they breed a lot like ants do, uh, <laughs> even yeah. though they're rodents. And they're a little bit pain resistant as well. Yes, they, they seem to be um, impervious to certain types of pain. So these are really crazy animals. But you know, for the purposes of this study, one of the biggest uh, remarkable things about them is their ability to live such a long time. As I mentioned, sometimes 30 uh, this lab that's profiled in the study has a mole rat that is 35 years old. So this is a really long time. And the question is, do these guys have something special about them that allows them to live so much longer than they should be able to? Let's just just tell me straight right now. Are they immortal? Do mole rats die? <laughs> no, they, do, they do die, but would they 
seem to violate something called the Gompertz Law. Have you heard of the Gompertz Law? Yes, sir? I've heard, read the story. <laughs> okay, so for people that haven't heard of it, this was a law developed by a UK mathematician, Benjamin Gompertz, in 1825. And basically it says that the risk of dying rises exponentially with age. And it's usually after an organism has reached sexual maturity. So for humans, after we reach age 30, our chances of dying double roughly every eight years after that. And this seems to hold true for most animals, at least most mammals, but it doesn't seem to hold true for naked mole rats. And this is just a probability thing. So as you get older, you're more likely to die. And when they looked at the data for mole rats, they didn't see that relationship. Right. They didn't see that. Even after these mole rats reached sexual maturity, which happens at about six months of age for them, each of these animals, they looked at, they have this colony of 3,000 naked mole rats. So this is a really large sample size they've got here. Each animal's daily chance of dying was just a little bit more than one in 10,000. So even as they got older and older and older, there was no correlation with how old they got versus what their chances of dying were. And this was great because it's a, it's a, oh, you know, some of my mole rats are really old. I wonder what's going on there. That's kind of how this uh, study came about, right? Sure, sure, sure. This researcher, her name is Rochelle Buffenstein, has been studying naked mole rats since 1980. She's actually got the largest collection in the world and also one of the largest data sets in the world as well. Well, what what about these mole rats makes them different? What are researchers looking at um, you know, within them in order to understand this different relationship with time that they seem to have? Well, they tend to be fairly cold, especially for mammals. They have a body temperature of about 32 degrees Celsius, which is about 90 degrees Fahrenheit. That may help them avoid accumulating cellular and molecular damage. Also, they seem to have really good DNA damage repair, and they're more efficient at getting rid of things like misfolded proteins, all of which can cause symptoms of aging, disease, and death. And because of all this, Buffenstein is wondering whether there might be a master switch that is controlling all of these things. And if we can find that, maybe we can do something similar for people. But are we going to lose all our hair? We could. We, we, we might have to run around naked all the time. <laughs> okay, Dave, what else is on the site this week? Well, Sarah, we've got a story about how some new artifacts unearthed in India may prompt a rethink of human evolution. Also a story about why snow melts. It's not always the temperature. In fact, the dust on snow can actually make a really big difference. For Science Insider, our policy blog, we've got a story about how an amateur astronomer has found a satellite that's still orbiting Earth and still working that was long thought dead. And we also have a story about a judge who has ordered the unmasking of anonymous peer reviewers of a scientific paper having to do with the company CrossFit and what impact that may have on anonymous peer review in general, because this is a very unprecedented decision. So be sure to check out all these stories on the site. Thanks, Dave. Thanks, Sarah. David Grimm is the editor for our online daily news site. I'm Sarah Crespi. Stay tuned for Douglas Starr. He talks about the Dunedin study, which has followed the same residents of Dunedin, New Zealand, from infancy to adulthood, revealing complex interactions between development, environment, and genes over the decades. 
The Dunedin study, also known as the Dunedin Multidisciplinary Health and Development Study, has been going strong for more than 40 years, since uh, early 1972, when it began following all of the babies born in one Dunedin, New Zealand hospital between April of that year and March of the next. Douglas Starr, a news writer, wrote about some of the incredible results this very long and very comprehensive study has revealed about drugs, crime, mental illness, as well as the complex interactions between genes, environment, experience, and development. Hi, Doug. Hi, glad to be with you. All right, so let's just dive right into how did you come to write about the story? I mean, about the study. I mean, it's been going on for a long time, and there's been a lot of interesting publications coming out of the data, but what made now the right time? A few years ago, I did a story for another magazine about whether or not violence uh, has a genetic component. And of course, uh, Moffat and Caspi's studies were premier among that, and I'd always managed to, always meant to uh, get back to them. And finally, I had some time and got in touch with them, and they were okay with it, and um, away we went. Can you tell us a little about the Dunedin study? How long has it been going on, and how was it founded? It's very interesting. It's one of the longest longitudinal studies uh, that we have. It started in 1975. Uh, a New Zealand psychologist named Phil Silva surveyed all the children that were born in a particular hospital in the city of Dunedin, which is in southern New Zealand, the first purpose was to find out how the new technologies at the time were affecting the health of the kids. But then he started observing them every few years to get a sense of their psychological and cognitive development. He was visiting Los Angeles in 85 when he met Terry Moffat, who was doing her PhD in psychology, and he persuaded her to join in the study, too. One of the unique things about this, besides its longevity, is how comprehensive the collection, data collection has been. Can you talk about some of the different things they've looked at in these kids and then now adults? Yeah, it's compre comprehensive in a lot of ways. One of the ways is the intimacy with which they ask the, the people questions. Uh, they do physical exams, dental exams, cognitive exams. They do extensive interviews. The people have given their police and financial records. Uh, they interview their friends and their teachers. So they get a real sense of who each individual is and how he or she fits into uh, society. It's probably one of the more intimate longitudinal studies ever done. And they have to keep a super strict confidentiality. Completely. I was hoping to go over there and meet some of their uh, study subjects, and they said, no way. Wow. Nobody but they know who these people are. And one of the things about being very confidential is that if there is some kind of crime, a lot of the studies that have come out of this have to do with drugs and crime, juvenile delinquency, and the researchers have to be completely mum about that. They are. A lot of nasty things turn up when people uh, talk to you in their confidence. Uh, they did thorough studies of abusive relationships, and they were astonished to find that women committed violence as frequently as men. The only difference was the women inflicted less damage, wow. uh, but they, they started it just as much. Uh, they found a lot of people uh, used drugs and cannabis. They found a lot of people suffered abusive childhoods. A lot of people committed crimes. They did good things, too. The other things I found interested is, having watched The Lord of the Rings, I assumed that New Zealand was this wonderful place. And they did comparative studies, and New Zealand has all of the problems that we do. Right. One of the things that, you know, besides exposing this, you know, very 
quiet part of people's lives, something they don't typically publicize. This study also shows how over time people have a lot more things happen to them, a lot more experiences that you really can't see when you do a random sampling of just people. It's when you follow them over time that you start to see these these hidden patterns emerge. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, of course, that's the strength of longitudinal studies. You know, if you're doing a, a comparison study, you're taking one group of people with a problem and compare it to another group of people, and you draw certain conclusions based on that, but you don't know if the other group of people previously had a problem. Yeah. So they found, for example, that adolescents who smoke ungodly amounts of cannabis seem to have higher rates of developing schizophrenia as they become adults. Looking at people over their life course, they found that almost everybody at some point uh, has a mental health problem versus people used to think it was the other way around. They found that certain adults developed uh, ADHD when it was thought that that was only developed in childhood. But because they had seen these adults as adults and as children, they could always go back and compare. So anytime you're doing that kind of long-term study, uh, you're bound to get some very strong results. In addition to, you know, taking advantage of how long these people have been in the study, the researchers have continued to bring in new techniques. So DNA analysis, all these different measures that weren't available, say, when the study started. What have those, what kind of results have those measures yielded? Well, they've been able to bring in things like, you know, complicated behavior analyses, DNA analyses, retinal scanning, uh, looking at the telomeres. MRI scanning most recently, and this all the time brings in new information. In the mid to late 90s, they started looking at the people's DNA, and they started getting some interesting results about how people's genotypes might be related to behavior. And and in contrast to some of the more simplistic studies, which said, yes, you have a gene for acting this way, they started developing a theory that people's genetic makeups might infer resistance. So there was an example where they were looking at the gene that produces, that codes for MAOA, which is an enzyme that breaks down certain neurotransmitters in the brain. They found that people who lacked that enzyme and were abused as kids seemed less resilient to the abuse and more likely to become criminals when they grew up. You know, this was a controversial study, but because they looked at so many people in such detail, they were able to tease out some of these interesting behavioral facts. Okay. Wow. We've really been through a lot of different findings and approaches here. What what to you makes Dunedin seem like this extra special study? What what to you really sticks out about this? There are a few things. One of the cool things is the way they've been able to constantly reinvent themselves from studying children to studying adolescents to studying adults. One of the things they did now that the study members are 45 is they're looking at aging and the precursors of old age. So they'll show pictures of people to their students at Duke in double blind kind of way to find out who seems older. And they're able to look back at those people at what kind of experiences they had when they were three, four, 15, 20. They've been looking at the telomeres to find out which telomeres seem to weather more. And there seems to be a correlation with children who were abused. So What they've been able to do by looking so closely at these people is really get a sense of what happens over the life course and what are the stresses and what are the rewards that we uh, weather that makes us who we are. One of the key findings that have come out of the study focuses on really young kids and ideas about self-control. Can you talk about that one? 
Yes, they were one of the early groups who looked at the idea of self-control in children. And over the years, they found that children who exhibited self-control at ages three and five ended up doing better as adults, uh, better relationships, better academically, better financially. And the interesting thing was self-control as a variable was more important than things like the neighborhood you grew up in or how you were educated or how much money you had. It doesn't mean these other factors weren't important, but they were surprised at the degree to which the self-control was a factor. And what about in the teenage years? This was something I thought really fascinating, was really fascinating, this idea that juvenile delinquency is a lot more common than you would think, but some people, they tend to actually be delinquent for the rest of their lives. Yes, uh, this is Terry Moffat's famous theory that seems to be borne out, and that quite a few teenagers commit minor acts of delinquency. Boys will be boys and girls will be girls. Uh, and, And she called them adolescent limited offenders. But there are some kids who continue to commit crimes well into adulthood. And in looking back, she found even at age three, these kids were trouble. At five, they were trouble. They committed crimes through their teen years. And they committed to commit crimes into their 30s. And she called them lifelong offenders. And that same group was responsible for a lot of the crime. Yes, yes. One of the interesting things, though, is this notion of juvenile limited offenders was one of the factors that the U.S. Supreme Court cited in 2005 when they decided that juvenile murderers should not be executed because they're not mature enough to know what they've done. Yeah. And what about the researchers involved in this study? I mean, they have to feel for these people who, you know, had troubled childhoods. They were subject to abuse themselves. I mean, and they're learning about these people for years and years and years. I mean, how can they how do they cope with that? It's tough. I mean, they've trained uh, their team in New Zealand and every couple of years they go down for several months and the evaluation process takes an entire day. You know, not only the scans and the physical and the dental, but also the interviews. Uh, And it can be very upsetting to interview somebody you've known for 30 years and see that their life is basically on the rails. On the other time, it's very invigorating to see someone whose life is turning out great. But one of the rules they have is complete anonymity and complete confidence. So they train their interviewers who are psychologists that if they're feeling upset by something, there's sort of a a safe room they go into where they could talk to each other. But outside of that, if they reveal anything, they're fired. It's also trouble because in a small city like Dunedin, you're bound to see somebody who you've interviewed. And they train the people, if you see such and such a person, you know, in the supermarket, you walk right past as if you don't know them. Right. By having such confidentiality and by treating their subjects with such respect, over all these years, they still have a 95% retention rate, which is simply unheard of in this field. Yeah. All right. Thank you so much for talking with me, Doug. My pleasure. Douglas Starr is a freelance science writer. His story about the Dunedin study appears this week in Science. You can find a link to the story and more information about Dunedin at sciencemag.org podcasts. And that concludes this edition of the Science Podcast. If you have any comments or suggestions for the show, write to us at sciencepodcast at aaas.org. You can subscribe to the show on iTunes, Stitcher, and many other places, or listen to us on the science site at sciencemag.org slash podcasts, where you can also find links to the research and news stories discussed in each episode. 
The show was produced by Sarah Crespi and edited by Podigy. Jeffrey Cook composed the music. On behalf of Science Magazine and its publisher, AAAS, thanks for joining us. This week's episode is brought to you in part by Science Careers. Looking for some career advice? Wondering how to get ahead or how to strike a better work-life balance? Visit our site to read how others are doing it. Use our individual development plan tool, access topic-specific article collections, or search for an exciting new job. Science Careers, produced by Science and AAAS, is a free website full of resources to help get the most out of your career. Visit sciencecareers.org today to get started.